0: You. The absence of a book about how to use traditional Native American stories or maybe the stories of any culture in therapeutic work. In, in, um I suppose we could say healing, though, that, that's a somewhat charged word. Um, but maybe we need to reclaim that word and, um, you know, make it our own. But anyway, what are your thoughts about that?
1: so if it's okay with you i'm going to go back to how this began
0: yes
1: so it's the way this project began was i was trying to put together a series of traditional stories traditional native north american stories on healing and i was looking for a book on the topic and i couldn't find one so i called lewis and i said can you recommend a book on specifically stories about native north american healing and his answer was i don't know of a book like that but maybe we should write one and that was the germ of the idea of that of what led us to this project in the first place and as far as as far as the word healing goes i mean you know we've talked about the 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 term therapeutic change work as another way to to describe it i I, I do think that we need to reclaim the term "healing" and to be able to use it in the context of um, of the kind of work that we're talking about of narrative narrative medicine.
0: I think you're right, and you know, if we go back to the old English of "holon," it means to make whole again, which is a a good concept i think and you know to undo fragmentation to restore harmony and balance
1: yeah and and as we have discussed before the everything about the western model uh western philosophy western concepts of knowledge has been about fragmenting about dissecting about taking things apart and so the whole reason for us to go back to this is a sense of of wholeness a sense of coming together as being a state of wellness wellness is that that wholeness that oneness that bringing together of what was fragmented
0: yeah um you know, I think about the word in French "guerison," and 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 it has an interesting relationship to "guerrier," which is a warrior, and "guerre," which is a war, and "guerrier," which is a warrior, and um, the implication is of something is of of a kind of struggle, of a kind of active motion forward. Um, which I find a bit appealing, though maybe not the proximity to the notion of war. But but it is a it it can be, it can be work. You know to 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 become whole again. <clears throat> I think it's um, I know it, Dina Metzger, uh, who's a, a writer, but also some traditional elders that I know say that you have to give something in order to receive something, that you have to make a sacrifice of some kind in order to become whole again. And, and, and maybe that's the active component, that, that you have to do something. You know, and, and in, in conventional biomedicine, we like patients to do nothing. We want people to be passive recipients of our um powerful treatments and um you know i think i think we're looking for something quite opposite of that
1: yeah yes i agree um we're looking for an active participation so that there is a relationship between the patient or client And the, the, I'm not sure what word we should use here, healer, if you want to use that, if you want to use therapist, whatever, whatever term we want to use, but the point is that it comes out of relationship, as opposed to the patient or client being someone that is acted upon. And I, the, the way that I often like to describe it is, if you bring your car in. You know, you bring it into a repair shop and your expectation is that you drop it off and then you pick it up and it's fixed. Whereas that model works very well with a machine like a car, but it works very poorly when it comes to a human being. Because the the therapeutic relationship is what does most of the work.
0: Right. And so we want to give people stories that they'll take with them and, and use.
1: And there is the co-exploration of both people working together to figure out how, how that change is going to take place.
0: Right. Right. And sometimes it's a mystery to me, how I can pick a story and it can be perfect. And I had no idea at the time but I think some corner of my being picked up on it and, and grabbed it and ran with it and it worked. So we don't, so sometimes it's a mystery, you know, and, and of course that's getting back to the conversations we've been having about indigenous philosophy, that notion of embracing uncertainty of, of uh, celebrating the great mystery of of knowing that we can't know everything, and we can't even know how we know the things that we know necessarily, which which maybe gets us into Uncle Albert, my uh, Australian, uh, he's a Gurunai Kurnai elder from East Gippsland, and as he was uh, trying to teach us how to throw a a boomerang so that it would come back, which is quite a feat, I might add. Um, he told us that there's 405 stories, creation stories in Australia, and they're all different and they're all true. So after waiting a um, an appropriate amount of time, I said, how so, uncle? <laughs> and he said, well, they're all true for the people who tell them in the place where they're told, which I thought was a profound notion. And we, d- we did eventually learn to make our boomerang come back. And we learned that you use a different boomerang for hunting, one that doesn't come back because you, you want it to hit the animal in the head and knock it out <laughs> and not come back to you. So the boomerangs that come back are practice boomerangs.
1: And and maybe that is what our stories do. You know, may, it may be that, that we send a story out with one intention and that it is heard in a different way.
0: Right, right.
1: And so the, the healing that takes place may not even be based on the message that you're intending when you tell the story or throw that boomerang.
0: Absolutely, and, and you know, I think where that gets us is that um, we're going to have to tell our audience right away that we don't have any universal truths to offer them. That, um, that whatever we say, it was true where it was true, when it was true. And not necessarily anywhere else or anyone else. And, and that hopefully we can show, we can demonstrate our process of finding a helpful story. And, and there's something to learn from seeing how we do it. But this Western notion of there being like one best story for each and every condition isn't indigenous. And, and I don't know if I knew that when we started this project, but I've, I've certainly come to realize it now.
1: Well, if you think about it, it also, it also goes back to at least what I I think I have observed in traditional healing, which is you do what you can do in the moment. And there are times where a person is Cured and healed of an affliction and there are other times where they aren't and we don't necessarily know why that is the case.
0: Right and and it's it's another. Western or or conventional we're going to have to work on languaging. um, Conventional concept that if something is true and good, it works every time that it's, it's replicatable. And what's interesting about that concept is that it's not even true in conventional medicine. It, that, okay, we, we accept a treatment because it works um, slightly more often than placebo. And placebo can work most of the time. And so, um, we're not even necessarily taking a treatment that works every time, but because we've got two or three studies that say it works more often than placebo, we say, well, this is the best treatment for X. And when you're actually practicing medicine and you're trying to pick a treatment, there is actually no guidance really for what to pick because just because A, B, and C work for condition X doesn't mean they'll work in the person who's sitting in front of you. And that is, it, that it's completely, it seems completely trial and error, even in, in conventional medicine. And, and so, um, you know, maybe this notion of repl- replicability, that something should work every time is an illusion as well, that, that, you know, it, it actually isn't the case anywhere. And we're, we're, we're left dealing with individuals, wherever we are, whenever we are. And, and that reminds me of a story that I've told you before, which was about a time when I took an elder to a medical conference to sit on a panel. And he came from a reserve in Alberta. Uh, He was a member of the Blood Nation, and he was sitting on a panel at a medical conference in Calgary, and a woman nurse in the audience raised her hand during the discussion period, and she asked him how he would treat arthritis. And he looked at her and he said, well, I don't know her. Why don't you bring her around to the house tomorrow, and I'll get to know her, and I'll let you know. Uh, Obviously he was being tongue-in-cheek but he was making a powerful point you know that that he didn't have the same concepts that she that the nurse had that, that he didn't parcel out health and disease in the same way that she did that for him that the end organ result was less important than the process of getting there which had to do with finding out what was out of balance in her life and and what he could do to restore balance harmony and balance. You know, which is certainly not how we think in conventional medicine.
1: And to apply that same notion to what we're talking about here. Theoretically, in a in a therapeutic relationship, the two people are having a conversation um and the 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 therapist of whatever kind is listening and absorbing the story of this person and then selecting a story from a big variety of stories and hoping that something within the story is going to have an an impact and very often the the impact is maybe different than what is intended but the reason that it works is because of the multivocality involved in a story. The fact that there are a variety of symbols that are being manipulated, that are being constructed, and that there is a resolution, and that the listener can glean from it some something that may be completely different than was intended by the person who told the story. The importance, though, is the impact on the the person hearing the story, how it can create an impetus for change.
0: And, And we probably should acknowledge that every story has a spirit attached or connected in some way to that story. So that you might say every story has the capacity to have an intention of its own so that the story itself can do something different from our intention for it when we told it, that it can take itself to where it wants to go and do something um, in accordance with its intention.
1: And in that way, I think we could <clears throat> we could say of the story that it is medicine with a capital M as opposed to a small M.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think of medicine as as sacred power would be another translation, or sacred energy, or you know, energy is usually defined as the capacity to do work, so sacred capacity to do work, of some kind.
1: And if we go back to the the model of of conventional medicine, and I'll use this particularly because you find yourself in in both of these different environments. If you were to sit with someone and hear their story, your prescription is then the story that you then subsequently tell that individual.
0: Right, and the story could be as simple as how I respond to it. You know, the micro expressions that I make, um, the comments that I make, um, <clears throat> you know <clears throat> I have a a patient client who's taking care of her sister in these days of covid and she certainly is a bit more fearful of covid than I am and she rarely leaves her house even though she's fully vaccinated but but um, you know, I have to, I mean when she tells me her stories of how she suffers to take care of her sister, who is a bit delusional and has a bit of dementia and some behavioral disturbances, you know, the, the only thing I can say is, wow, it, it's it's incredible what you're doing for your sister, you know, to keep her out of institutional care. and the sacrifices that you're making are just tremendously impressive, you know, and and I don't know that I could do what you're doing. So I just wanna celebrate, you know, your altruism and your generosity and your tolerance for behaviors that are difficult to tolerate, you know, and, and, and that's medicine for her because she forgets that what she's doing is truly noble.
1: And it it takes your listening and reflecting it back to her to even know that that mechanism is at play.
0: Right. Right. And so that in and of itself is is medicine. You know, it's it's um, it's the sacred capacity for her to do work in changing her concept of her behavior In, in recontextualizing her behavior as more noble than it seemed when she was in the midst of trying to convince her sister that no one was coming to give her a blood transfusion in the next five minutes to their house (laughs) you know -hmm.
1: yeah now if if we could return to the the comment that you made earlier about sacrifice it's obvious in traditional north american medicine of some kinds the the kind of reciprocity and the kind of sacrifice for example if you're going out to pick a medicinal plant you reach into your pouch and you pull out an offering of tobacco and offer up tobacco offer up a prayer before you begin cutting that that first plant how would you describe the kind of sacrifice that is involved in this kind of storytelling and narrative medicine
0: I I I think the the listener, the supplicant, the patient, the client, whatever we're calling them, has to commit to doing something, to sacrificing time, energy to work with what we give them, um, to transform it, you know, to let it work on them. Um and maybe just coming to see me for an hour is a sacrifice for some people because it's hard to get to me. You know, the transportation is difficult for them. Finding an hour free is difficult for them. And then um, typically I ask people to do something after they leave our meeting. And so they have to find the time to do it or else they have to struggle to find a really good reason for why they didn't do it, which sometimes takes more energy than just doing it. <laughs> so either way, you know they have to give something of themselves. And um, I re- I remember it was I was asked to see a woman uh, during COVID via Zoom by um, one of my colleagues, and. Um, So I I was trying to come up with a a reason for this woman to get off the couch. And she had some horses that she could feed. And there was a mailbox down the lane she could walk to, to to garner the mail. And yet she wouldn't. And... Um, And so um, after two or three meetings, she said to me, do I have to keep meeting with you? And I said, of course not. (laughs) Definitely not. And she said, well, good, because we're done. (laughs) So so I did not succeed in finding um, a pathway, a mutually acceptable pathway for her to get off the couch. And she was done with me. So whatever she was willing to give um, did not involve getting off the couch.
1: And that would also be an example of somebody who was not willing to make the sacrifice.
0: Right, right. I think that's.
1: And I think that's really important here, that your story is very powerful in telling us what is not the sacrifice. Because for example, when a, when a child hears a story, that's one context of storytelling that, you know, there's a, there's a time and a place for a child to sit down with an adult and hear a story. And there's a completely different context for the kind of storytelling that I think we're discussing here. And one of the aspects of sacrifice here is the humility that it takes for one person to approach another and say, I have a concern, I have a problem, I have something that I need help with. And there is, in that process of humbling oneself, that really is the beginning of the sacrifice.
0: Indeed, and you remind me of of an elder whom I knew in North Carolina, Hawk Littlejohn, uh, Cherokee, who's uh, crossed over now, and um, once upon a time, I went with him to see a woman in her hospital room, who had requested him to come and do a healing for her. And we sat down, and she talked with us, and and and, and she wanted to know what his fee was. And he said, "My requirement." is that you do something truly selfless for someone else. He said, you have so much money that it doesn't mean anything to you, that, that I couldn't pick an amount that would be a sacrifice for you. So my requirement is that you do something truly selfless and altruistic for someone else that doesn't involve money that you can't buy. And I I just thought that was profound. You know, he didn't want anything for himself. And he recognized that the sacrifice involved in healing had to be something meaningful to her and that pain was meaningless.
1: You'll notice also though, that he didn't let her off the hook by saying, "You don't owe me anything."
0: right. He didn't do that either. He didn't do that either. yeah, yeah what he
1: what he did was to create an exchange. It wasn't in the usual way. It wasn't, "I give to you, you give to me." Mm-hmm. And it was an energetic exchange nonetheless,
0: indeed. And and in the interest of full disclosure, I do have to point out that his wife was an internal medicine doctor who had a a reasonable salary. (laughs) So so, um, he wasn't in the position of some people of needing to pay their rent or buy groceries. Though the people who are in that position seem to me just as ethical as Hawk was and maybe more heroic because their need is greater
1: true and it it also what it also reminds me of is the difficulty in establishing an energetic exchange in our society where if somebody says well you can make a donation mm-hmm. what what that means in the context of our society is that what was given must not have a lot of value if you're letting me donate whatever I want, whereas the opposite is true. That what really is going on is that this medicine is so profound and so meaningful that you can't attach a dollar amount to it.
0: Indeed, and and it it brings home the notion that Reciprocity doesn't quite fit into capitalistic valuation. Where there's always uh,
1: a winner and a loser.
0: Right, right. And everything has value relative to everything else. So my time is more valued than the janitor's time, which is probably terribly unfair um, in some deeper ethical sense but um you know here we are
1: (laughs) it's just a good point of comparison of contrast Mm -hmm. in values um one of the questions that i wanted to jump on is the context in which we tell stories so let's talk a little bit about how stories have been told, how stories are told, how do we take a story out of one context and move it into a different one? So let's, if it's okay, let's begin with with a traditional understanding of a story. Who tells the story and who listens to the story?
0: You know, my sense is that anyone tells the story who's drawn to tell the story, and some people tell more stories than others. So um, perhaps the older you get, the more stories you tell, because maybe because people expect that from you, and um, and you you know you at least on the reservation, you know engaged in ordinary activities or even preparing for a ceremony. You never know when somebody will sit down and give you a teaching, which is typically in the form of a story, um, or in ceremony. Sometimes, during pauses or or during part different parts of the ceremony, um, an elder will break into story. And sometimes, at least I'm wondering, what what does that mean? And is it for me or someone else or maybe it's for all of us and and one doesn't know and maybe that's part of the beauty is that then one has to figure out like how does this how does this refer to me or does it or or is it something for all of us to understand and you know in in our in in our context though i i certainly have been known to tell stories during the pauses between rounds and the purification ceremony um, or during other ceremonies or during the breaks at Sundance or or whatever. But I think we tend to tell stories. You know, we, we live in the world of um, where people come to us for help. And I tend to tell stories in that context. I tend to do... I like to do visualizations or what you could call uh, guided imageries or, you know, they are, it's, or some people call it, you know, hypnosis or whatever you call it. I like to embed stories into that telling. And I, I like to do that in group context too, in workshops or in um, whatever we call it, group therapy, um, group, healing um, I'm I'm right now playing with so how do we do health care if we were going to do um, indigenized health care and' um, <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm thinking about um, a, a A waiting room that's more of an encounter room and not a waiting room like you're not waiting for something you come into the room and you encounter stories and traditional stories stories told by people who have you know different conditions and um and then at some point you can go into the exam room and and um be looked at, but then you can go back to the encounter room and continue to hear stories, or maybe to do beadwork, or maybe to um, make ribbon shirts, or maybe to fix your toaster. <laughs> so, um, so I'm thinking about how can we transform the culture of waiting into a culture of encountering. You know, in, in which more happens before the 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 medical encounter and after than during
1: I think it would it would take a certain degree of um setting that space aside mm-hmm. separating it making it a liminal space
0: that's what we're gonna try to do and I don't know how we're gonna do it yet which is probably good because if I knew how we were going to do it, it wouldn't work.
1: <laughs> I, I want to just back up for a moment um, in, in a way it ties into what you're saying right now. And that is to talk about the way that storytelling in Indigenous communities, at least the way I have experienced it, is that someone may tell a story in front of lots of people people of different ages, genders, backgrounds and it may be that every single one of those listeners is getting something different out of it.
0: Right, right. Right, so, so stories in that sense are multi-generational. They have, they have meaning for each generation and perhaps different meaning for different generations exactly so the
1: same story could mean something very different between a child hearing it and uh a young adult versus an elder everybody's going to interpret it in their own way
0: right right and and that makes me think of the uh, of the story that you and i both love about the the missionary with the elders the one that um um, yes uh, Charles Eastman tells, do you, do you want to tell that story?
1: Yeah, sure. So, uh, so the, the, there was a group of elders who, who got together and they were, uh, they were discussing stories about healing and medicine and, and, uh, somehow this missionary came to be there to, to be a part of it. And I've heard this a number of ways told in a number of different ways. So let me just kind of go with the version of it that I think works best with what we're talking about. So each one of these elders had a chance to stand up and speak about medicine and about healing and about transformation. And finally it got to the, the, the missionary and they were kind enough to give him a chance to speak and when he got up to speak he talked about jesus and he talked about the bible and everybody listened approvingly you know they they made sounds that kind of showed that they appreciated his story and when he was when he was done the next the next uh elder was about to speak and He kind of was offended that somebody else would speak after this, because his view was that this was the this was the most important story. This was the one that everybody else could attach to as important and that that it superseded all of the other stories. And their point was that they had listened respectfully to him tell his story, and now it was time for him to listen with respect to someone else's story. And I think of that as a metaphor for understanding stories in general, you know, that there is one view that there is only one story that is applicable to everyone. That there is a universal truth that everybody needs to adhere to versus the idea that there are numerous perspectives, there are numerous maybe unlimited truths and that part of part of being a human being part of living in a in a world where people come from different perspectives is for us to hear each other's story and to give ourselves over to the the possibility of multiple truths even truths that may be at odds with one another even in the face of contradictory truths that my truth comes from my context and your truth comes out of your context and we can meet somewhere and i can recognize the truth in your story and you can recognize the truth in my story and that that mutual respect lies at the basis of of all of this communication and the furthering of, of us as human beings in a, in a multicultural world.
0: Right, and, and even that, um, the stories that people tell about themselves change with, with changes in the, who is the audience, that there's no one story, that, that a different story emerges in every telling And, you know, we did a study about this once where we had um, people with chronic pain were interviewed by a doctor who could prescribe medication or by a medical student who couldn't. And the people presented themselves as much more whole and capable and resilient to the medical student than to the doctor because, you know, or or at least our theory, our thought, was that they needed to position themselves in such a way as to be pitiable by the doctor so that they would get the prescription that they wanted, whereas it didn't matter with the medical student. And so they might as well position themselves as, as valiant warriors, you know, in a battle with pain, which is not what they did when they told their story to the doctor so so the story we get from people varies according to the context and and absolutely
1: and what it also reminds me of is um something that i hold i heard tom porter tell who is a mohawk elder as you know spiritual leader and tom was talking about the difference between a story that's written down in a book versus a story that's uh, in part of an oral tradition and he was resistant to writing things down in a book in spite of the fact that he eventually came to write two books and that's for other reasons but but his objection to a written story is that a written story is fixed it becomes something that is static as opposed to a story that is told that may be told if you tell it 20 times it'll be told differently in each of those contexts even though it is essentially the same story that the storyteller and the listeners have a way of interacting with one another that alters the the telling of the story so the way he explained it was that a story that's told as a part of this oral or spoken tradition is like being standing in moving water; that it it changes, it's fluid, as opposed to something that is solid that becomes a an object.
0: You know, a friend of ours signed her mother up for Story World, and um, so in Story World you tell stories with prompts and send them off to story world and they render them into text and send them back to you and her mother when her mother got the text back she said that's not the story i told that doesn't mean anything to me i don't want to read it i want to hear it because when you read it it's not what i said and um, so, and, and our friend's mother is not indigenous; she's Italian. Although one could argue that there's a certain indigeneity in Italianness, um, but but she had her own recognition that the t- that the oral rendition was radically different from the written text, and I think that's what we're talking about that here and that. That leads me into asking you to talk about your experience with Uncle Richie, with um, hearing <laughs> and recording those stories.
1: Yeah, so uh, so I I should tell the story of how I know Uncle Richie. So my, my adopted uncle, Richard Tarza Sr., was a medicine man and a tribal historian, a family historian, and for many, many years, I would uh, bring groups of people to his home. And he would speak on a variety of different subjects. And often, he spoke about his great-great-grandfather, who was a famous Kiowa chief by the name of Big Bow. And he spoke to so many different people over the years with me. Um, in fact, the way that I met him was, I was I had a group of people that were with me, and we were non-Indians. We were staying in teepees in Southwest Oklahoma at a place called Fort Cobb Lake, and it was a state park. And we were traveling. We were going to to different Native events, going to people's homes, doing all kinds of things to be immersed in these these cultures, because there are eight tribes that live in southwestern oklahoma in the area that we were staying and the man who came to collect the fee from the state park was um was this man willie who was the uh the brother of my uncle who would eventually become my uncle richie and he asked us what we were doing while he was collecting the fee and i explained it to him and he said oh you know you'd probably like to meet my brother. He's like a tribal historian, historian of our family. And he has a lot of stories to tell. And I said, okay, you know, I I told him, I told him we'd love to. And, you know, I asked him where he lived. He told me he doesn't have a phone, but you should just stop by and see him and tell him that that I sent you. So one day later in the week, we were heading back into our camp from town. And we had a few extra minutes and I figured I would just get out of the car and I would knock on the door and just tell him who I was and that I would come back another time to discuss bringing a group there. So I got out of the car and I knocked on the door and Uncle Richie comes to the door, you know, who I didn't know at the time. And I told him, oh, you know, I have this group of people and I was wondering if at some point we could come by and visit with you. And he said, Well, I was expecting you come on in. And I said, Well, did you talk to Willie? Is that how you you know I was coming? And he said, No, I I didn't talk to Willie, he said, but I had a dream. And in my dream, God told me that someone would show up and would bring people from all over the world to visit with me. And here you are. And so we brought I brought the group of people in and like 20 people filled up his entire living room. And Uncle Richie started telling stories. And he took out a, a, a small iron skillet and he heated it up on the stove <clears throat> and then put some cedar, the green part of the cedar on it, to create the smoke to smoke off everybody, to purify each person who was in our group. And it was a, a beautiful, beautiful way to meet him and to start this relationship that would eventually lead to my being adopted into his family. But he told me one day when I was visiting that that he had been approached by a number of different people who wanted to record the stories of his family and record all of this information that he had acquired over his entire lifetime. And he said, I turned them all down. And he said, I'm thinking that you're the one who should write this down. He said that to me and he asked me if i would write the the book with him and i said you know it would be an honor for me to do that and we decided that the best way to do it would be for me to to start coming to his house every time i was in oklahoma i would come to his house and i would record a session with him where we would cover different topics and i came up with an outline for the book and i decided to ask him you know go each session would focus on a different aspect of this collective story for the book. And every time I went there, I recorded it. And every time I recorded it, it had a sense of wholeness to it, it had a sense of coherence to it. And every time I felt like I, when I, by the time I left, I felt like I, I really had something of substance that could be used in, in the book. And it wasn't until after Uncle Richie died that I finally went to all of these recordings and I had them transcribed and I figured, you know, I would put them into this outline that I had created. And I found out when I went back to it, none of it made sense in a coherent story that had a beginning, middle and an end. And it it was of great concern to me and great frustration because I thought I had I thought it was conforming to the outline of the book. And what I realized was every single time I was with Uncle Richie, I was under the spell of the story, regardless of the fact that it it was not the kind of story that could be told in a linear way and literally without exception every time i asked him a direct question i would get an answer that maybe had nothing to do with what i was asking and I, it was i had a sense of going around the world and coming back and not even knowing how my question had been answered and i tell that because there is a sense in which the old timers, the, the elders that I really came to know a long, long time ago, would tell stories in a non-linear way. A story that didn't seem to make sense in a conventional Western sense, but it lent, it lent itself to a feeling of change and a feeling of meaning generated from the time that we spent together does that make sense to you
0: lewis yeah i think you know we've talked about a kind of presence that is created between the teller and the listener yeah and i and i i think that may be the spirit of the story and and you can grasp that presence can come into you and you can grasp something that is happening in the there and then that you can never get out of the written transcript. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think we've all, <clears throat> on some level, we've all had the experience of being somewhere and feeling that it was profound and then reading the transcript and thinking, "Ho oh, hum, what was that all about? Why was I so moved by what was going on and we forget that you know there we do have these spirits that we have these shikuns they're called in Lakota these presences that everything has a presence a shikun and that um when we sit together we we share these presences and and when, when we just read something it's not there or if it's there it's there so faintly that it doesn't move us in the same way you know and um i think that's i mean the beauty of zoom is that we can connect and the downside of zoom is that the presences are not quite as powerful as if we were together true yeah
1: if i could finish that story with uncle richie also so i still had this i had an obligation to him to figure out what to do with all with all of this to try to create a book because a book is different than hearing a story and a lot of times there were multiple there there were multiple sessions there were sessions where he told the same story in different ways at different times different parts of even the same story and what i did was in order to create something that would have a linear structure i took The transcript of all of those sessions and I literally cut them up with a pair of scissors and I took even sentences and I put them, I arranged them into folders by topics that were in my original outline. And then I reconstructed them to to have a sense of a beginning, a middle and an end. So I had to impose a linear structure onto something that was very, very circular and seemed to make sense in the moment. And as you say, it was it was that presence, it was that intersubjective sharing that we had in the moment that is almost impossible to convey in a in a linear format.
0: Yeah, it is, isn't it? And it it reminds me of a book that I read written by um, some Australians about stories of the land. And um, the way they did it. And it was confusing to read, actually. But the way they did it was to um, walk about with the elder and just record all all of the stories that he found along the way and sometimes they walked across the same spots from different directions and got different stories but but the way they organized the book was by walks and and if one was expecting a linear exposition, one would have been severely disappointed mm. but the but it was interesting reading and and it was probably why it was considered a textbook of anthropology and not a popular book is <laughs> that it was too close to the real thing
1: yeah, yeah I had a a similar experience with um with a Yavapai Apache elder named David Sign, I don't know if I ever told you this story, Um, but I had a group of people with me in, um, we were in uh, Camp Verde and then in Sedona, Arizona. And, you know, Sedona is kind of a new age center and there's a lot of popular understanding of the meaning of the landforms as, uh that has to do with um what is it that they call it ley lines and and vortexes and all kinds of things like that 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 have meaning within the the new age context so david and i this this apache elder who was probably in his 80s at the time that i'm telling the story about which was probably 20 some odd years ago we pulled up to an intersection in Sedona and he pointed to the jeep tours there were these jeep tours that would take people out to these different sacred sites and they would tell tell about it and he pointed to it in his very very slow way and he said that's one of them bs tours then when we got we had our group of people and we went from one site to another to another and every time we got to a particular site. He referred back to the ancient stories of his people and how what happened at that particular location, tied into what would happen at the next location, and the one after that, and we went on a circuit like that, where collectively together, they made sense, where they all tied into one cohesive story about monsters and monster slayers and original human beings and how we came to populate the earth and i remember asking him at one point is there anybody else who knows all of these stories and how they connect to these individual places and what he said was as far as i know i'm the last one who knows it
0: Mm -hmm.
1: so i i told him you know it would be terrible for you to Go to the grave and and not have these stories available to other people would you be willing to let me record them and he said yes and i came back another time by myself and i had a tape recorder with me and i asked him if we could go to the spots and record them and he said no he said you know i would feel funny doing it into a tape recorder but when we did it with that group of people it made sense, I was able to speak to those people about these stories. And to the best of my knowledge, David did take those, those stories to his grave with them. Not that the individual stories don't exist, but that, that sense of wholeness that comes out of all of the stories and their connection to each individual landform that may be gone. But it really, that story I think really speaks to what we're talking about here about the connection to place and the, the context of how one tells a story.
0: Yeah, and um, I wonder if we could, if it would work to take you to those spots and invite you to reach deep into your memory banks and tell the story that he told i wonder if we could get some sense of that
1: wow that's a great idea
0: (laughs) why don't we do that
1: Uh, i'm there i'll meet you in sedona
0: i'm always looking for a reason to go to sedona (laughs) i i i do would i would like to have a charm to ward off new agers though (laughs) (laughs) you're so Uh, annoying
1: (laughs) yeah you're not kidding
0: yeah, we got to do that.
1: I loved going with him there, though, because, you know, prior to to his doing it, uh-huh. all I knew about Sedona was was what the New Age people were saying about it. You know, I had gone to Sedona, I had asked people about the different places, and I, I got one unbelievably different sense of the place than, than when David was with me.
0: Yeah, because... Cause they're, they're ancient beings, those rocks. And, and I think they resist the new age characterization of them.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. They, you know,
1: we went and part of the, part of what was so, I don't know, disturbing, <laughs> I guess, is the, is the, the contrast between his very, uh, I don't know, his humble earth-based understanding of it versus the very ego-driven and ethereal version of, of what the place meant to everybody else. And when he wanted to take us to what they considered, his, he said his people, considered the most sacred place and in order to get there we had to drive into a um a complex uh, uh, a a hotel complex or i i should say it was a resort complex so we had to park in the resort complex parking lot and then go to a gate that led to a little fenced in area that was what, it was like a token concession to the the native people that they could go in there and perform ceremony. And we had to go through that, the, the, the whole non-native touristy spot in order to get to this little area where he could perform ceremony.
0: yeah what a what a reminder of colonization and subjugation
1: yeah and the fence is the perfect metaphor for it
0: right 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 yeah you feel that on indian island where i live because it's a reservation that's an island but at any place on the island you can look across the water and see settler colonial encampments, so it's a reminder that it's a reminder of containment and captivity,
1: and it's also about the transformation of the land
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: that that the land itself has a particular meaning to native people that it doesn't have to the colonizers. I think about the, the title of a book, uh, Wisdom Sits in Places.
0: Wow, yeah.
1: And I mean, that that has been my experience that to hear a story in the place where it took place is also different than hearing the story in a neutral location
0: right right like a hotel meeting room <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. exactly yeah
0: <laughs> Burkhart, you know the philosopher Cherokee philosopher makes that point that that part of the power of any story is its, its presence in a locality And the more you abstract it and and delocalize it, the more it loses its power.
1: Absolutely.
0: I, I think that's why we probably tend to tell therapeutic stories that are from the place where we find ourselves or from the culture of the person who's hearing the story. At least I tend to do that. Mm-hmm.
1: Whenever possible, sure. Whenever
0: possible, right. Right. And there are people who, even though they're of indigenous heritage, they know no stories. Um maybe they were raised urban or um they just didn't pick up the stories. And and so they're storyless people that that, um, you know, sometimes need an infusion of their own stories.
1: Or may have to borrow neighboring stories because of the lack of their own stories.
0: Right, right. And, and you know, we talked about a, a fellow that um, was Shoshone, and he traveled around Alberta and Saskatchewan in the 1970s, when people there were realizing that they could now reclaim their stories and ceremonies because of the uh, Indian Religious Freedom Act passed in 1960 in Canada, but they didn't know what they were, and and this fellow. Uh, whose name I'm not remembering, but um, we could find it. There's a dissertation written about him at the University of Northern British Columbia. And he said, look, do it in the way I do it. And if you do it that way, your elders will get annoyed with you and they'll come to you in dreams and tell you the right way to do it. (laughs) And then listen to them and do it that way And pretty soon you'll be doing it your way and not my way. And that's exactly what happened. Very powerful.
1: That's really profound.
0: Yeah, yeah. So so when we say that something is lost, maybe it's just misplaced. So I, I think those stories from Sedona are still there we we just have to recover them we just have to go there and find them and we can we can facilitate your digging deep into the past and bringing them forth
1: and i think we have a, a secondary metaphor here too which is that healing stories are about restoring wholeness when something has become broken and right. there is in the in the bringing the stories back we're also trying to restore to wholeness the brokenness of the various tribes and peoples who lost their own stories as you say
0: right right
1: so in a way this is a this is a collective project of healing
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and that so we want to say to people who pick up this book that we're writing that um, that don't necessarily do what we're doing but watch what we're doing and and follow the process of what we're doing and use the stories that are local to you and your context and your clients and your people and and that the process is more important than the content that True. we do. We do what we do, because we are where we are, who we are, and whom we're with. And that can't be duplicated. But the process is, can be duplicated. Mm-hmm. So see this, see this work as as a verb and not a noun. Yeah which will be a real challenge to us to decolonize our thinking. But it's, it's a good challenge. So there's a couple of concepts that we've talked about and maybe we've said enough about them. Um, one is the lack of distinction in native stories between secular and sacred. That uh, What would be considered a ribald story in in English would be a sacred coyote story in, say, Kiowa, Mm -hmm. that it's all sacred, and that traditional stories are timeless and true for all times, but they're also within time, and they can change over time. Those are some concepts that we talked about. Um, Barbara wants to add something here. Just adding that, that come closer to the microphone. Just just adding that um, that the stories that last are the are you know the legends are kind of the the ethics for a culture and that and that the characters that last are the teachers and the healers for a culture. And so that it's really good to know. The culture that comes from the place where you where you come from and the, the teachers and the healers that live there like in cornwall it's the giants for example and the pirates mm-hmm.
1: i have a story about secular and
0: sacred oh great tell it
1: so uh well this is a, an anecdote i should say so years ago i i had a program. uh, In fact, here on Long Island, where I am now, where uh, I brought in a number of of Native presenters. And one of them was a dear friend of mine named Wolfsong, who was an Abenaki storyteller. And he was telling a series of these stories that really offended this one woman. You know, they were, they were what we would consider dirty stories as you you described a moment ago and she actually left she was offended by the stories that were being told and that was a great opportunity for wolf song to explain exactly what you're saying now which is that that these stories that would be considered dirty within the context of sacred versus profane, uh, which is really a Western model. They were considered to be sacred as well. That, in a sense, we could say that all stories are sacred.
0: Right, right. And so the
1: meaning, the meaning within the context of the people who told the stories originally was completely different than what the meaning that, that this woman imposed on it this much later.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was imposing a Eurocentric worldview on a non-Eurocentric culture. And then me... the
1: the other thing that I was gonna ask you, uh Lewis, I, I wanna so when this is transcribed, this is gonna go a little further back, but if you could explain the difference between pluralism and essentialism.
0: Yeah, um, so pluralism is the notion that there's a whole lot of stories and all of them are true. And one chooses the story that works best for the context and the purpose in which one finds oneself. And essentialism is the notion that there is an essence of the thing or of the situation and that there's one true story that can be discovered or carved out or found or uh, elucidated that's true always for that particular thing or problem or place or whatever and and i think um you know, essentialism is a colonizing belief that we're trying to overthrow, to decolonize and come back to the many many versions are true position, um, which allows us much greater access to the complexity of the world because it's a really complicated place. And if if, anyone has ever tried to understand quantum physics. Um, It's overwhelming. Just the the math. And so, to say that we understand something is a bit arrogant. That that to say that we have a bunch of stories about the way things work. And we're going to pick the one that's that'll serve our purposes the best to get where we want to go. <clears throat> so <clears throat> so I, I think about the example of, of um, meditation. You know, if, if, I, if my goal is to feel peaceful and calm, I don't need the reductionist, essentialist explanation of the neuroscience of meditation and the FMRI findings and the neurotransmitters involved. I just need a story that says, here's how you do it. And here's when you do it and how long you do it. and This is what's gonna happen. And that's good enough. You know, if I'm going to a neurology conference and I wanna convince people you know, neurologist, then I need that other story. So, so both stories are true and, and they have different uses.
1: And there's, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you as the teller of the story are making the adjustment on the fly, knowing how to craft that story
0: right in those right. two different contexts right right and 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 we keep doing that for a third or fourth or a fifth context which is pluralism mm-hmm. then we keep recrafting and recrafting the story to fit the audience and the and the needs of the moment I, th- I think the other thing we talked about was the interrelationship between ceremony and story. That story explains ceremony. <laughs> you know, there is an origin story for for every ceremony. and and participating in the ceremony is participating in the story. And it and it it's an embodied telling of the story that has um, somatic impact, that that when we participate in the story that is ceremony, it affects us physically. It it physically embeds us in the story um, in a more powerful way than just telling it in the abstraction as we were talking about earlier
1: what yeah what strikes me about it also is that that the the telling of the story gives meaning to the ceremony and the the movement the the dynamic aspect of the ceremony feeds into the the story that that each one um each one provides, creates the impetus for the other one to be more powerful. That when I hear a story, it makes the ceremony make sense. And when I do the ceremony, it makes the story have more impact as well. Right. And there is something about the doing of ceremony that as you say, um, has the somatic embodiment I now have it in in every fiber of my my being my my materiality the material aspect of my my body as well as the the thoughts in my mind
0: yeah and and somehow that leads me to thinking about something else we discussed which is you know that that Ethnographers will often argue about which is the correct version of the story, and and they're all correct, <laughs> you know, because, because it's the nature of the story to be told differently every time, and and it's not, in an oral culture, it's not the case that you could fix something by writing it down and make it. And render it permanent, because um, it was never that way. Which, which is not to say that it's not interesting to 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 trace stories, you know, to look for the earliest version of a story, and to follow it through history, and to look at at some of the branches that it might have taken, the you know the tributaries that. It might have, you know, traveled, um, and to wonder about how did the how did the need for the story change, you know, it, which is sort of a kind of ethnographic scholarship. But um, and I, I think of that in the sense that um, one of my interests has been in in looking for earliest stories to to consider how to de-Christianize some stories, like how to tease out um, elements of stories that were um, made cr- more Christian in the telling. And, and clearly people needed to do that in order to survive. You know, they needed to make terms with their Christian conquerors, both ideologically and, and um, in terms of power. But, but it is interesting to, to trace stories backwards historically, but it, it doesn't mean that any of the versions are wrong. You know, they're still, they're still all true. Even as we, you know, construct an archeology span of, of versions of the stories. And it, it reminds me of Walker, You know, the the physician ethnographer who worked with the Lakota, who wrote about how the elders were of his day, which was the 1890s to the 1900s, were angry with the young people for changing the stories and the words to make them more contemporary. That That the elders wanted the stories and the words to stay in the past, but the young people were already bringing them into the present, and um, and 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 maybe there's no escaping the movement of time, you know, the march of history, so to speak. Um, and and you know, certainly that's true when people migrate, you know, like the so in, In around 1100, um, the Cree and the Dene had a big war, and the Dene lost. And some of them went north into northern Saskatchewan, Alberta, Manitoba, Northwest territories. And some of them went south um, to where the Anasazi had left and filled up northern Arizona and northern New Mexico. So that, that was roughly 1,000 years ago. And if you look at their stories, um, they're radically different, even though the language is exactly the same. And they're, they can completely understand each other. But, but the southern Dene absorbed the stories of their neighbors. I mean, transforming them a bit, clearly. They're different, but similar. And, and incredibly more similar than the stories of the Northern Dene to the Southern Dene. So, um, so when they moved, they needed stories that matched the locale to which they had come that the stories from Southern Central Saskatchewan didn't work in Northern Arizona, Northern New Mexico. They had to morph, then to become something that the land would, something that resonated with the land there. And, And some of that, of course, was diffusion from Pueblo people including Hopi, but some of it was not, some of it, I think, came directly from the land and from living on the land and being molded and influenced by the land.
1: So the point is then that, that a story may have a certain, a certain central coherence to it, And or it can be altered, depending on the experience, the place. And that's that that speaks to that malleability of stories. Right. And somehow when you were telling that story, somehow this one popped into my mind that um, that when Christianity was brought into Mexico, that there were some indigenous communities that couldn't make sense of the, the, the story of Jesus until they, because they, they had this concept a certain duality that made sense to them. And in retelling the story of Jesus within these communities, they told it not the way that the, that the Catholics had told it, but they looked at Jesus and Mary as being husband and wife because that's the only way that they could make sense out of that story.
0: Wow. how about that?
1: So that's sort of the the flip side of what we're talking about here, of taking Uh this so-called universal story and then reworking it, which is why I, I also find it interesting to look at Christianity as a story in indigenous communities where, they're not, necessarily, they're not necessarily touting Christianity as much as they are a native interpretation of Christianity or a native take, an, a native response, I should say, to Christianity rather than Christianity the way that it was originally brought to them or intended.
0: Right. And you figure that a story from the Middle East would have to change to fit into South Dakota or Oklahoma, that it just wouldn't make sense in its Middle Eastern version. So I guess maybe we could finish with, um, we talked about three levels of story. And um, when we first talked, we talked about universal level. And I realized I want to get away from that word universal. Um, but I, maybe we could we could say that there's a level at which stories affect all of us regardless of our cultural background. Yeah, that um, you know theres there's some common human, experiences, you know, the experience of suffering, the experience of pain, the experience of loss, uh, the experience of joy. Um, And immediately whatever we feel gets put into cultural symbols and ways of expression. But there, there are these perhaps common triggers among Upright mammals.
1: Um, I'm thinking maybe we could call that a collective human level.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a kind of collective human level. And then there's the cultural level, you know, which is, which is what, how the story functions for a particular group of people. And, um, it's it's a a level in which no explanation of context is required for the people who belong to that group you know and if you're an anthropologist there's a lot of footnoting necessary to explain the context in which the story is told
1: exactly because if you were to take somebody from another culture and to plunk them down into the middle of that community, so much of it would be lost on them.
0: Yeah, yeah, they just wouldn't get it. Like, um, I remember, you know, our, fa- our current favorite show is Reservation Dogs. And we saw an interview with the director and the producer. And he said the biggest challenge was to give non-Indians permission to laugh and to help them understand when to laugh. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Which also reminds me of a story. I went to see Smoke Signals, the movie Smoke Signals. Yeah, yeah, I love that movie. Mm I
0: was
1: I was in the Hamptons, you know, where (laughs) the middle of of uh, this uber wealthy part of Long Island. And I went in with my wife and we were cracking up at at lots of scenes in the movie where nobody else laughed because they they just couldn't even conceive of what the cultural references were. Right. Right. Right.
0: Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And
1: that's a perfect example of this, the cultural level of telling a story.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, somebody Mm
1: -hmm. would have had to sit with the people and and provide them with a context to understand it. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, like like the incredibly funny humor in Reservation Dogs when when the spirit speaks. You know. Oh,
1: that's so great. <laughs> yeah.
0: Really funny. And yet, you know, if you didn't know the culture, you might not know how funny it is.
1: Exactly. And it, it and it turns the the stereotypes upside down also. Mhm. Mm-hmm.
0: I'd, I'd like to get, I'd like to someday talk to one of the, those New Agers and see if they understand at all why it's so funny <laughs> in the spirit.
1: Yeah, and you know, probably that we should have a subsection here where we where we do talk about humor.
0: Yes, yes, as Thomas King said to understand Indians, insert more humor and insert more dogs. <clears throat> we'll have to have some pictures of dogs interspersed, dogs on reservations interspersed of book. And then that we talked about the last level being the therapeutic level, that that in which it speaks to the person and that person's needs, and often in ways that we don't we don't predict, which we've talked about earlier, but so we have the collective human level the cultural level and the individual therapeutic level
1: and this therapeutic level also ties into what i what i mentioned earlier about that being the the prescription
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right right right
1: so that's the that's the doling out of the medicine that theoretically is needed in that moment